0: Well, good morning on this beautiful summer day, summer day, glad you're here. Aren't they good? That was awesome. Hey, thank you guys for leading us in worship. I was trying to think of how to compliment you, I was thinking of saying it was like you weren't even there um, because you were just a conduit of leading us to worship, but that kind of sounds bad because you were there and you did a great job. So thank you, Uh, but it's important that our worship, yeah, is pointed straight to God, that That last song, I I hope you guys were able to focus on those words, Lord, I need you, oh, I need you. Isn't that the fact? Isn't that the truth? We need him day in and day out, complete dependence and submission. So we're glad that you're here. This morning, we are going to be in John 13, but I want to ask you this question. I want you to think, hear the question, and think about your answer. How are you doing right now spiritually? How are you? I'm not wanting you to shout it out, but, but think about it. How are you doing? Are you succeeding in the Christian life? Why or why not? That's a hard question. It's a kind of uncomfortable because it's like succeeding? That doesn't sound right. But bear with me. <laughs> are you succeeding in the Christian life? Why or why not? You know, we know that when we come to Jesus, Jesus saves us through his blood on the cross. We know that then there's a process of life change where we become more like Jesus. And that, it's a process that's going to take place until he comes back or we die to be with him. But that process, how do we know that we're growing, improving, doing better? Or are we just staying the same now as last year and the year before? You know, we, we're able to measure success in most other areas, right? If you're a student, how do you measure success? Grades, yeah, sure. Or just being in the room if you're a senior at this point. (laughs) Yeah, you know, if 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 you're a worker, you know, how do you measure success? Is it maybe it's your salary or your position or or things like that? Uh, In sports, track, how do you measure your success? That you're you're getting faster or you're jumping higher, you know, or you're hitting the ball farther or throwing it faster. We have ways to measure. But when it comes to the Christian life, is there a way to measure how we're doing and our progress? And I'm going to argue that Jesus gave us a very good measure, but the problem is we often use wrong measures, and I think the wrong measures have led to every problem in the church. Now, this is my opinion. That, that part's my opinion, that getting this question wrong, measuring our spiritual success, our goals incorrectly has led to every problem in the church. And I would say it's the reason why the church in the United States is not growing. It's that big a deal. Do I have your attention? Turn to John 13. There's a couple measures, and we're going to touch on them coming through, but I wanted to bring these out kind of right up front. There's a couple measures that I think are wrong that we fall into. The first is knowledge. We can fall into the trap that knowledge equals spiritual maturity. And so the more that we know, the more mature we are, the closer we are to God or whatever it is. Uh, Or if we know the right things, which varies from church to church. You know, churches will develop kind of their own language and lingo. And if you learn that lingo, and then you can say all the things that they say, now you've arrived at maturity or whatever that is. But that's the one knowledge that is, we need knowledge as Christians. We're going to talk about this going through. We need knowledge, but it's the wrong measure. Now here's another one, holiness. Holiness. A lot of times people will use holiness as their measure for spiritual maturity or success. How how are they doing? Are they not doing the wrong things? I don't go to R-rated movies, I don't drink, I don't smoke, I don't go with girls that do. You know, I'm not doing these things and I am doing these things. I go to church most Sundays, you know, I, I read my Bible and so I'm good because I'm not doing these things and I'm doing these things. Holiness. Well, we should be trying to do the right things and not do the wrong things, so that's not bad. But again, that's actually the wrong measure. I'm gonna give you the measure that I think Jesus gives us and the Bible gives us, and then we're gonna get into this passage and see it. The best gauge of spiritual maturity in one's own life is not knowledge or behavior, but love. The best gauge of spiritual maturity in one's own life is not knowledge or behavior, but love. Notice that in there it says in one's own life. Our goal here isn't to find something to judge others with. (laughs) That's not what we're looking for. We're looking for something that we can use to look in the mirror and look at ourselves. When we start using anything to judge others, oh, you know, I'm above them, we've got it all wrong. But this is to look at ourselves. How are we doing? So in John 13, Jesus is going to talk about this. Now, here's the context. John 13, this is what's called the farewell discourse, Jesus is with his disciples, his 12 disciples. He has left his public ministry. His public ministry is done. He's going to be dead the next day. They're having a final meal together in in an upper room. And here Jesus is kind of giving his, his, it's called the farewell, you know, his farewell address. These are his last words. And you think somebody like God in flesh, his last words might be important. And these last words, he has saved for those close to him. And so they're in this upper room. His death is imminent. He knows it. You know, you can tell as you read through these next couple chapters that Jesus is troubled. And we know he's troubled. He knows what he's about to go through. Not just death on the cross, which is horrible. Not just beating, which is horrible. A crown of thro- thro- thorns, which is horrible. But he's going to go through some kind of separation with the Father that we don't fully understand. He bore the weight of the sin of the world on his shoulders. That's the pain I think he was most fearful of. Maybe not fearful is the right word. He, he had confidence. He had faith in the Father. But he was troubled because he was about to bear that. And so here he is with his disciples on the last night, and he's going to give them some final instructions, and he's going to do something. Now, you've probably read this before. You've heard of it. But I think there's some significance that we need to notice. He's going to wash his disciples' feet. And he's going to talk about a couple things. Now, in chapter thirteen, there's a couple emphases. One is love. We're going to see that over and over. He's going to set an example of love. He's going to teach on love. The other is his betrayal, and both of these themes run through this chapter. You see him talking about love, and he's like, "Oh, and by the way, one of you stinks. Now, it, one of you is going to betray me." Um, and so there's it's throughout where John is writing this. Now, remember, John was the youngest of the disciples, so the disciples are at this meal. He could be a teenager. He could be in his late teens. He's there observing all of this, and he's remembering this later by inspiration of the Holy Spirit. He's writing it down. So this is John's perspective of what's happening this Last Supper, and he knows Judas is the guy, and he's not crazy about Judas. If you read through, he he takes any chance he can to poke at Judas, and who wouldn't? But Judas is going to betray Jesus this night. Jesus knows it. Judas knows it. Nobody else knows it. But we're not actually going to focus on the betrayal. We're going to skip some of that because I want to hone in on Jesus' teaching of love. So we're going to start in John 13, verse 1. Now, before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. Now, we need to look at that verse because that sets up the rest of what we're going to look at. Before the feast of the Passover... If you remember, Jesus was crucified, uh, and it was on Passover that he was dying, and they said, let's break the knees, break the legs of those on the cross, because we can't leave them up there during Passover. And when they came to Jesus, they found he was already dead, so they didn't break his knees. But this is right before the Passover, so this meal is probably not the Passover meal, but they're thinking Passover thoughts. They're preparing for the Passover. And if you remember, the Jews would celebrate Passover every year. It was when God miraculously brought them out of Egypt. And the way that they, that's my wife. That's all right. <laughs> so so the, the, the last miracle that, that brought the Jews out of Egypt was God sent an angel of death that killed the firstborn of every home, the firstborn animal or human. But the way that you got out of it was you killed this lamb and you put the blood on the doorpost. And if the angel saw the blood, they passed over. And over and over in scripture, Jesus is compared to the Passover lamb. That we won't suffer because of our sins, that like we should, he will pass over us and we will get life instead because of Jesus's blood. John 1, 1. Or John one twenty nine said that. When John the Baptist sees Jesus, he says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Now getting at the end, that theme kind of comes back up. Jesus is the Lamb. The Passover is when they celebrated this. It all runs together, but Jesus knows what's happening. And when Jesus knew that his hour had come, that hour is the time of his death. Throughout John, it speaks over and over. Remember the first miracle? Jesus looked at his mother and he said, My time has not yet come. He meant my time to die, my time to to sacrifice for everybody's sins. Now he says the time has come. The hour is here. I'm going to die very, very soon. So the time had come for him to depart out of this world, having loved his own. This is where the theme of love really begins, and it starts, listen, this is very important. It always starts with Jesus' love, with God's love for us. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. We need to notice one thing because this is going to come up later. To the end is not a great translation. What it really should say is he loved them to the uttermost, to the complete. That's what that phrase really means. It can mean to the end, but in this context, it really means he loved them all the way. As far as somebody could love somebody else, that's how far Jesus loved his disciples. All the way, nothing held back, gave them everything. So to the uttermost. Because he loved them, Here's what happens. Verse two, during supper, they'd already started eating, maybe it was mid-meal, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments and taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. We need to understand this so we can understand the rest. Foot washing. They're having a meal here. Jesus gets up, takes off his clothes, puts on a towel, and starts washing their feet and wiping them with the towel. In that day and age, you know, we don't know much about washing feet. Maybe you've done it in church before in a small group, and it's really awkward. In that day and age, that was the slave's job. You know, they wore sandals. They didn't have awesome shoes like we do. They wore sandals. It was dirty. They didn't have cars. They walked everywhere. And so they could be clean. They could have just had a bath and then walked to the neighbor's house and their feet are dirty. It was the slave's job. Most times, even a Jew wouldn't do this. It would be a a Gentile slave or somebody like that. They would wash the feet. A servant would wash the feet. Humblest of humble jobs. Just picture that. Have you ever washed somebody's feet? We don't need a show of hands. It's weird. It's awkward. And it was even worse than... And not just the action, but the stigma that came with it. To wash somebody's feet, you are saying, you are above me. You're placing the other person far above and you're placing yourself the lowest of the low. And here's what we need to understand about what Jesus is doing. This is the creator of the world. This is God washing their feet. So there's several things that we're gonna see throughout this. But one of these things that we need to understand is the symbolism of what he's doing. Jesus, here, it says here, he laid aside, verse 4, he laid aside. This is the same language that's used elsewhere about him laying aside his deity. God becoming man, he laid aside a piece of his deity. Now, we don't fully understand all of that, but he became a man. He humbled himself and became a man. He set that aside in order to serve us so that he could die for our sins. Here, he lays aside his garments and serves them in this beautiful, humble way. The God of the universe, the creator does this. And Peter's gonna respond in a minute, and we're gonna see how he responds. But this is out of order. This is out of order, isn't it? Don't we have an accepted order? Even in our society, we have an accepted order of things. Uh, When I was a custodian right out of college, I worked in the U.S. Embassy in Moscow, and I vacuumed and took out trash, and that's what I did. And one of the one of the rooms, one of the places that I worked was uh, a top secret area. It was like the the, the high level attachés were there, the colonels, the you know the highest level. They were in that room, and so I would have to go through a thing, and they would show a camera, and I'd push the button, and say my you know, and they'd open a door. It was like in Get Smart. They'd open a door this wide, and I'd walk through, and I'd wait, and that one would close, and then the next one would open, and then I'd go into this top secret area. Um, And I went in, and this was full of 30 or so people who were high level. I mean, these were accomplished people. And you would expect a custodian coming in, them with their achievement, you know, I'm nothing, they're something great. And and that that was the order. I was taking out the trash. And some knew it. I mean, that was just, I was, they wouldn't even notice I was there. You know, I'd have to ask them to move to get their trash or whatever. But that's kind of the order of things. You know, the ambassador, you know, back then, he, he, he noticed who was low and who was high, and he reckons, you know, he was, if you saw him in the elevator, he didn't talk. I mean, it was just kind of the, the order of things, and we have that. Now, imagine this. Put this another way. You're working all day. You get home. Out in front, you see a limo. There's a couple of Secret Service people standing out there with the little earpiece in and the glasses. You walk inside, and the president is in your house, and he's scrubbing the toilets. And there's not cameras. This isn't like a, publicity thing. There's no cameras or anything. The president is just there scrubbing your toilets, vacuuming your floors. That doesn't make sense, right? That's out of order. And then he gets out, says, you're a special, gives you a hug and leaves. (laughs) I'm trying to help us (laughs) just get a little bit. Way bigger than that, the God of the universe became a man and then became the lowest of lowest of men, washed their feet. That's the scene. They get it. They get that this is not the way things work. This is out of order because they know who Jesus is. But he's doing this uh, and we're going to see Peter respond in just a minute. But I want to give you kind of the three reasons he does this. There's three reasons that we see in this passage why he washes their feet and we're going to look at each one. But the first one is to show his love. And that's, we saw that in verse one. Jesus did this to show them I love you. Simple as that. The second One was to give an example to be followed, and that's going to be some of his teaching on love. The second reason was to give them an example to follow. He's going to say, do as I just did. And then here's the third reason. What he did was symbolic of what he was going to do on the cross by cleansing people of their sins. By washing their feet, he's cleansing them. It was symbolic of cleansing somebody of their sins, which he was going to do the next day on the cross. And we know about the symbolism because he, he breaks it down. Side note, okay, little sermon in a sermon. Reading the Bible, typically you read it, the plain meaning of the text is the best understanding of the text. Don't look for allegory. Don't look for all these hidden meanings. But here we see that there is a meaning in what he does because he explains it. He explains it to Peter. When, when that happens, it's okay to do that. But don't read something and go, I think this means that and that means that, and it's all this secret. If somebody tells you they have a secret understanding of a text, don't believe them because they're seeing, you, you know, you're not intended to see something new or special. You're, you're supposed to see what is meant when the author wrote it. So these are the reasons um, he laid aside, we talked about that, he laid aside his deity. He came as a man. Philippians 2, 6 and 7. This is part of that symbolism. Philippians 2, 6 and 7. This outlines what Jesus did, what God did becoming a man. Speaking of Jesus, he says, who, though he was in the form of God, form means exactly like. So Jesus is God. Though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant being born in the likeness of men. And that passage goes on and talks about how he humbled himself even to the point of death, death on a cross. So he sets aside his deity comes as a man, lower than low, washes their feet, and look at verse 6. Here's what happens. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? That makes sense, right? When you understand the order of things, why would you wash my feet? This makes no sense. I should be washing your feet. Lord, do you wash my feet? Jesus answered him, what I am doing, you do not understand now, but afterward, you will understand Peter said to him, you shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, if I do not wash you, you have no share with me. So here Jesus is making that symbolic representation of the foot washing with the cleansing of sin. And Peter, rightly so, understand this, understand Peter. Peter is impetuous. Peter's the guy who earlier, when Jesus said, I'm going to have to go and die, Peter goes, no, you're not you die? I don't think so. And, and Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. This is Peter. He's like, we'll take care of this. Uh, it, later this night, when uh, Judas comes with all the soldiers to arrest Jesus, Peter's the one that goes, uh-uh, and pulls out a sword and cuts somebody's ear off. That, that's this Peter. You know, and Jesus puts the ear back on and heals him. But so, so here's Peter. Peter speaks his mind. I like Peter, actually. He speaks his mind. And here Jesus comes to wash his feet. And he's like, heck no. Nope, you're not washing my feet. I know who you are. This doesn't make sense. And look what Jesus says. He says in verse 8, if I do not wash you, you have no share with me. He's talking about cleansing him from sin. If I do not cleanse you of sin, you have no part of me. If someone does not have their sins cleansed through the blood of Jesus, they are not part of the church. They are not saved. They are not part of Jesus. They are not disciples. Jesus here is making a, a bold argument against universalism. There is a way to be saved. It's through the blood of Jesus. And he has to cleanse us from our sins. And he says, if you don't let me wash you, you have no place with me. Unless the lamb of God has taken away a person's sin, has washed that person, he or she can have no part with him. Now, he doesn't fully understand this, but he'll understand later. But here's, look look at the picture again. Who it is doing the foot washing. And here's Peter. He wants to do his part. Are are you like that at all? I am. I want to do my part. I want to earn my place with God a little bit. If I sin or do something, I I need to pay for it, right? No. The the gospel is that Jesus did everything for you. You do nothing. You do nothing. You don't earn it. Peter wants to do his part. And he says, no, you just receive. You just receive what I have done for you. I love you. I'm going to die for you. You just take it. But how often, I've heard this, I I need to get myself cleaned up, then I'll come to church. You know, I've got this stuff going on in my life, I need to get better, then I can start coming to church. No, you come to church, you come to Jesus, and and he will cleanse you. That's what he's talking about. He does it. He does everything. All him. Look at verse 9. Now, Peter, he goes the other direction, and it gives Jesus another opportunity to apply this in a different way. Verse 9. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. Peter really wants to be part of Jesus. <laughs> he says, fine, then wash all of me. Jesus said to him, the one who is bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but it's completely clean, and you are clean, but not every one of you. For he knew who was to betray him. That was why he said, not all of you are clean. You see, he's very very, very clearly making this symb- symbolic gesture of washing their feet, saying, this is washing your feet. He washed Judas' feet. Can you imagine that? Washing the feet of the person you know is gonna betray you later that night. He washed Judas' feet. I wonder, I wish I could go back and just look. Was there, a, was there a glance between the two of them as he was washing Judas's feet? But he said, you are all clean except for one of you. So the foot washing didn't actually clean them of sin because Judas was still dirty. It was symbolic of what was going to happen. And here, Peter says, well, then wash all of me." He said, you don't need that. Look at these verses. You don't need that because if if you've taken a bath, you're clean, just wash your feet. What this means, and all commentators really agree, here's what he's talking about. If you have been cleansed by Jesus, if you have by faith accepted Jesus' sacrifice on the cross, you said, I believe that you're the Son of God, you died for me, and now you are Lord of my life. If you've done that, you're clean. Done. Not over and over, one time. But are you perfect? No, we're not perfect yet. I, I'd like to be, but I'm not. And so we, we have this thing called progressive sanctification. That's the theological term where we become more and more like Jesus as we walk in the Spirit, submit to Him. We become more and more like Him. And so we have sin that we need to deal with. It's kind of like uh, here in Nevada, we have goat heads. So you can be inside, you can get all clean, and then you go outside. And, and if you're on one of those properties that is covered with them, you'll walk around, and you come back to the house, and they're just all through your feet. And a good mom says, don't come in here, take your shoes off. You Take your shoes off, you sit there, pull all the goat heads out. It's kinda like that. We're clean, but we got these goat heads of sin in our lives that we need to continually look at, repent of, and give to Jesus. We need to have our feet washed of sin day by day by day, and how does that happen biblically? Biblically, we're, we're washed through the word. It's over and over in scripture. We are washed by the word. The word reveals to us our own sin and we are called to then repent of it and give that to him. Not, this isn't for salvation because we're already clean, but he will reveal sin to us as we study his word and submit to him. He'll reveal things that we then have to give to him. And he typically, he uses the word. A helpful way to do this is David's prayer in the Psalms where he says, search me, O God, and try my heart. See if there be any anxious way in me and lead me in the everlasting way. Do you pray those things? Do you look at yourself? Do you self-examine and go, okay, is there sin? I'm gonna give that up. That's what he's talking about here. Look at verse 12. Because if Jesus has cleansed somebody, what's the outcome? Now he's gonna teach on love. If Jesus has come and that person has received cleansing, how do we know they're clean? Or how do you know you're clean? Look at yourself. Verse 12, when he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, do you understand what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If then your Lord and teacher, if I then your Lord and teacher have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed you are if you do them. Here he applies it to them. He applies it to them. If you're saved, if you're cleaned, you're gonna be like Jesus. You're not greater than your master. No slave is ever greater than the master, no servant. We are not greater than Jesus. And Jesus went to the lowest of the low, which means that's what we do as Christians. How did Jesus love? To the uttermost, to the end. Jesus gave his life for his disciples. That's how deep this is for us. We are to do the same as he has done. How often we have gotten this wrong in the church. How often... And I'm talking history, from the dawn to now, how often the church has got this wrong. Jesus says, be like me, the lowest of the low. But how often, I'm gonna be a little blunt here, so if you wanna just close your ears, that's okay. But how often do we, do we want position? Do we want control? Do we want influence? Um, do we want recognition? Do we want people to do things our way? How often do people strive for these things rather than willingly going to the lowest of the low and serving others? The stories can go on and on. From the beginning when they started having bishops and these things and people would seek out a position in the church so that they had control, but they didn't even know Jesus. Or where pastors have their their assigned parking spot right in the front, you better not park it because they deserve it. Or other places where there's plaques and things for the big givers in the church so they can be recognized. These are the things that the church has done and does do. But it's the opposite. These are the problems. Why, why? Why? Do so many churches have disunity? And it just destroys the church. And we're gonna get into that a little bit, but it destroys because people come in and they go, me, my rights, I deserve this. And somebody else trampled on my rights. Now I'm against them. And you have this stuff even within the church. And Jesus is saying, that's not the way among you. Be the lowest of the low. Paul writes, hey, if, if a fellow brother or sister wrongs you in love, okay, be wronged. Don't take them to court. Let them wrong you for the sake of Jesus' name. You know, as I was thinking about this, you know, I, I had to put. You know, we talk about this. We're a young church. We're a year old, and we're trying to figure out, you know, how God wants to lead us forward. And we need leaders. The church needs leaders. Every church needs leaders. But we need leaders—people to lead groups, people to get involved in ministry and take others with them. And here's a, here's a secret. Don't tell anybody. How do we look for leaders? The person that comes in and goes, hey, I'm really great. Um, I've been at all these churches. I've done all this stuff. You should have me lead your stuff. I'm really good. That, that's the person that you go, uh, maybe, maybe, you know, I mean, maybe they are. But it, we have to be careful. Here's what we're looking for in the church. We're looking for the person that humbly serves the lowest of the low with joy. I heard a story of a a wise church leader. I don't know if he was an elder or a pastor, but a a man came up to him, a young man, somewhat full of himself, said, hey, I'm just out of college, whatever, I know a lot, you should have me lead a group. And he said, you know, we don't really need group leaders right now, but what we really need is someone to mow that grass every week. It just gets long and we need somebody to mow that grass. Would you be willing to come each week and just just mow the grass? And he did. He did. And the guy came, and at first he did, but it's like I shouldn't be doing that. I'm above this, you know. I have a Bible degree. I should, eat. but but he mowed. And over time, you know, this guy shared. His heart changed a little bit, and it was joy to serve. And then at that point, when it was joy to serve, he was able to move to something else. And this guy wrote that there was a couple of years later that he walked out and he saw some other young guy mowing the grass. He's like, I know what's going on there. <laughs> it, but it was a, it was a test. It was a test. Will you humbly serve with joy? Those are leaders. Uh, Jesus said it this way, talking about leadership in Matthew 20, verse 25. The disciples, by the way, it's kind of normal to fight for position. The disciples were doing it too. I want to be the best. And Jesus said this in verse 25, Matthew 20, 25. But Jesus called them to him and he said, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them and their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you, but whoever would be great among you Must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be your slave. Even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Again, our example is Jesus. And we'll never reach his glory. He's God. So, our response when we are cleansed is we become the lowest of the low. We become servants to the uttermost, to the uttermost. Take a minute and just look at yourself. Measure yourself. How have you been measuring yourself? Do you? We should. We should look in the mirror and go, God, how are we doing? We should look at the Word, God, how are we doing? How do you line up with this? Now, in verse 17, he says, he ends it. He says, If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. Jesus speaks right against that whole knowledge equals maturity. He says, if you know it, that's good, we need knowledge. But if you do it, you'll be blessed. Here's a little secret to life. Knowledge doesn't bring much blessing. Doing what you know brings blessing. And the word blessed here means happy. Do you know that? The word blessed actually means happy. Happy are you if you respond by loving others and being the lowest of the low. It's joy to do that. If you're serving and you're grumpy about it, there's something off. There's something off, but it's a joy. But do, James says this, Jesus' half-brother, he says the same. He says, be doers of the word, not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. It's a deception to think knowledge is maturity. He said, do it. Paul talked about it elsewhere. He said, if I do all this stuff, this is in 1 Corinthians 10, or 1 Corinthians 13, he says, I can do all these things. I can prophesy, speak in tongues, all this stuff, but if I don't have love, I'm nothing. I'm a banging gong or a clanging cymbal. Love is the measure. Love is the measure. Love. I thought I'd throw this definition in. What is love? Love is doing what is best for the other person when they least deserve it at great personal cost. That's love. Doing what's best for the other person when they least deserve it at great personal cost. Jesus died for us while we were still sinners. We didn't earn it when we least deserved it. He died for us. We're the same way. You know, skip forward a little bit, look at verse 20. This is a piece we're gonna pick up on later but Jesus starts hinting at it. He says, truly, truly I say to you, whoever receives the one I send receives me and whoever receives me receives the one who sent me. Later he's gonna really give the, the commission to go but the cleansed person is sent. Now we need to have that in our mind as we keep reading. The cleansed person is now sent into the world the way Jesus was. Jesus said, I came to seek and save the lost. We're sent for the same purpose. And so now he's gonna talk about how we go. Verses 21 through 30 is is the Judas situation. Uh, He kind of recognizes Judas as the betrayer. A couple of them see what's going on. Judas leaves and the devil enters into him and Judas goes to do his thing. We're skipping over that and we're gonna get to verse 31. Judas is now out of the room. Now it's just the 11. Now it's just those who really are cleansed, who really are disciples of Jesus. And in verse 31, it says this, when he, referring to Judas, had gone out, Jesus said, now is the son of man glorified and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him at once. This glory that he's talking about, that Jesus will receive, that the Father will receive, this is all the cross. The greatest glory that came to Jesus and the Father was also the greatest humiliation that's ever happened, the cross. That's what he's talking about, the, the glory. Verse 33, little children, yell you know, a little while I'm with you, you will seek me. And just as I said to the Jews, so now I also say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. We're not going to talk about that verse. We're going to talk about that next week. Because he kind of throws this in, by the way, I'm leaving. And they're like, whoa, what? (laughs) You almost wonder if he heard his next couple sentences. Because in verse 36, Peter goes back to this comment. But we're going to go about this next week. Next week, we're going to look at the future. What is to come? Because that's what he talks about. So he kind of drops that in there. And then he continues in verse 34. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. The Jesus followers' all out love for one another is the greatest testimony to the world that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. Do you see that? What is our greatest testimony to the world? We're sent. We know the Great Commission, go make disciples of all nations. We're sent to the world to make a difference, to make it a better place, to introduce people to Jesus. What's our greatest testimony? Our love for one another. Not our love for them. Our love for them, that's a big deal too, but our love for one another. The, The church, the church by the way we gather, by the way we forgive, by the way we step up and love one another, that's the testimony to the world that Jesus is who he said he is. If we look like everything else, we have nothing to talk about. If we invite somebody to church and they come in and they hear people gossiping in the back and they hear about the divisions and all this stuff, and they hear about the person that's starving and nobody's helping them, they're gonna go, what's this? This is no different than my life. But when people come in and they see in the church Nobody's in want. People forgive each other quickly. Wait a minute, that happened and you forgave and you guys are hanging out, son? You know, that's the testimony to the world that Jesus is who he said he is. And now he says this, this is a big deal. If you've tuned out, tune back in. (laughs) Verse 34, a new commandment. No, it's not. No, it's not. Because earlier, when Jesus was talking to a Pharisee or a lawyer, And he said, what's the greatest commandment? He said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. That's the greatest commandment. He was quoting the law. The law of Moses said, here's the greatest thing, love God. Here's number two, love others. So what makes this new? This is a big deal, and this is what's gonna take up the next chapter and a half. What makes this new is it's not law. This gives me chills. What makes this new is that now you actually have the power to do it. What makes this new is it's under grace. It's under the new covenant. Again, the rest of the chapter in chapter 15, it's going to be great. We're going to spend four weeks uh, on chapter 15 looking at abiding. But that's what makes this commandment new. Now, you're actually going to be able to do it. This comes after cleansing, by the way. This comes after cleansing. If you're not cleansed and you're going to go try and love this way, you're going to fail. You can't do it, but with Jesus, you can. Jeremiah 31, 33. this was long before Jesus came. This prophet was looking forward to the new covenant, and he said this, this is the new covenant I will make with the people of Israel on that day. By the way, that day was this day. Jeremiah, hundreds of years before, was looking forward to this day of Jesus, saying, in that day, says the Lord, I will put my instructions deep within them and I will write them on their hearts. I will be their God, and they will be my people. The law, which was great, was this, saying, you do this. The new covenant was Jesus coming saying, I love you, I'm going to be in you, and now I'm going to make you new. We are new creations. The old has passed away, the new has come. Now you can love because I'm going to love through you. The Great Commission Jesus said, go make disciples of all nations. And he ended it with this. Oh, and I'll be with you till the end. He goes with us in a very unique way, the Holy Spirit in us. That's two weeks from now. So don't (laughs) miss that. But we're gonna look at how the Holy Spirit works. Jesus lays this out and then he's gonna explain it over the next few weeks. But this is new because now it can actually be done in a God-powered way. This love is a result of a new heart not legalistic duty. We need to understand that. This is a result of a new heart, not legalistic duty. This is the best measure. This is the best measure of how you're doing. How are you doing spiritually? Are you loving others by humbly serving them and putting them above you with joy? There's the measure. How are you doing? How am I doing? Here's, here's, okay, I didn't even put this, here's a glimpse of me. When I find uh, life going on, I'm irritable, and I get that way. I'm irritable with people, I'm I'm short. I don't get irritable with you guys, you guys are my family. (laughs) When, When I find myself not serving others, which happens every now and then, when I find myself putting myself first, here's my problem, I'm not leaning on Jesus. It's not that I'm not saved. I don't lose my salvation. The problem is, I'm not walking with him. I'm not leaning on my love for him. When I recognize this is happening, and it happens. Sometimes it's a day later. Sometimes it's an hour. But it happens where I realize, I'm a grump. (laughs) You know, I am really selfish right now. What's my problem? Well, my problem is this. I don't need to go try and be nicer. I need to connect with Jesus. So when that happens, what I need to do is go time out. And I need to go sit down. Spend some time in prayer. And I typically begin with the Lord's prayer because it recognized God for who he is. So I go to him and I go, God, you, you're God, I'm not. You know, I love you. Hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done. So it's about you. It's not about me. And then I go through the rest, but I, I just kind of lay myself out and I ask him to take control. And often then I'll go to the word. And, and it, sometimes it takes several times. I need a couple doses of that. <laughs> But, but that's the order. I hope you understand. You, you see the order isn't to go try harder. We're empowered by God to do it. But I have to say this. If you don't ever experience this love, you need to look at yourself. The same author of this book also wrote 1 John, and he got really blunt in 1 John. Don't read it. <laughs> because if you read it, you're gonna be convicted. But he says this in John, 1 John 4.20. If anyone says, I love God, and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. This is what happens. When you're saved, when you're cleansed, and you receive the Holy Spirit, you will become loving. Now you can't measure this in others because we all start in a different spot, we all have our past, you know, and sometimes we, we work with it, but it's going to happen. The Holy Spirit through you will love others. If you don't experience it, he's saying you're a liar. Uh, let me tell you this too. He says elsewhere, there's a lot of liars in the church. There's a lot in the church that in the end, they're gonna stand before Jesus and say, hey, didn't I do this in your name and that in your name? And he's gonna say, depart from me, I never knew you. They were doing it for the wrong reasons. Their heart was not knitted to God and Jesus. They didn't really love. It doesn't tell us you know, their reasons. We have different motives. But we need to look at ourselves. The church should look different let's apply this. Look at yourself. If you are a committed Jesus follower, are you allowing Jesus to live in and through you to love others? Have you been using the correct measures? Listen, we're not going to be perfect. We're not perfect, but we're being perfected. So how are you now compared to a year ago? How are you? Look at yourself. Do you love others better now than you did a year ago? Are you growing? Are you growing in knowledge but getting less loving? I've seen that. That's scary. That's pride. How are you doing? If you're a note taker, this is on the bottom of your notes. Um, If you're in the app, I think it's on the bottom of that too. But I'm going to read this. Answer these questions to yourself and then we're going to close in worship. In what ways is the love of Jesus evident in and through your life? Think about it. In what ways is the love of Jesus evident in and through your life? Is the fact that you have been cleansed by the blood of Jesus clearly visible in how you love others? Is the Holy Spirit stirring your conscience to actively love a certain individual or seek forgiveness from a brother or sister or to forgive a brother or sister? You will be blessed when you actively love others empowered by the Holy Spirit. Recognize the order of all of this. Please recognize the order. Jesus cleanses you, you have nothing to do with it. The result of that cleansing is that he empowers you to love others. If you don't see that love happening, you need to come connect yourself back to Jesus. We're gonna really get into this in a couple weeks, but right now this is a chance for us to look at ourselves and go, where are we? How are we doing? And how are we as a church too? We need to be a loving place. Let me pray and let's worship. Lord Jesus Christ, um, I am so unfit to convey your words, um, but I just ask, Holy Spirit, that you, you would do what I cannot do, that you would convict our hearts, that you would show us where the holes are, that you would reveal to us if we have not submitted to you, that we would do that. If we have not been cleansed by you, that we would come to you, we would say, Jesus, I believe you died on the cross, you rose again. I confess you as Lord of my life, please cleanse me of my sin, I repent of my sin. I pray that we would do that now if we haven't. And Holy Spirit, I just beg that you would, you would empower us to love the way you love. Jesus, you set, you set the bar far out of reach. We can't serve the way you did. We can't love the way you do, the way you did, we, we can't. But when we're empowered by you, we, we can and that's what we're called to do, and when we do that, this place will look very different than the rest of the world, and we will make a difference in the lives of others. Our families will thrive. Lord Jesus, I beg, if we can live this way of submission, submitted to you and loving one another, our families will be amazing places, amazing places to be. Kids that come to visit, they'll wanna hang out because this house is different. That's what we want. We want to serve you with joy, humbly serving and loving others. Jesus, this is all because of your love for us. It's all possible because of what you've done for us. And we're confident that you're coming back and we can't wait. We love you. Until then, we're gonna be about your business. In Jesus' name, amen.